Uh, Psalm, uh, sorry, it's Matthew 26, verse 56. And so Jesus is speaking here, and he says, But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. As we turn to Genesis, the beginning, the groundwork for the prophets is being laid down in Genesis. And we read here in chapters 41 to 45 that Joseph remembered. Joseph had a hard time. His brothers betrayed him. He was the innocent one. He was a, sir, he was a slave. Then he was a steward of Potiphar's house, and he was wrongly convicted of attacking his wife. He was put in prison. And there he languished. And then at age 30, Pharaoh called upon a foreign slave because there was no one else that could help him to interpret dreams and help Egypt, Egypt prosper. Joseph remembered, despite the fact that he was betrayed by his own family, one of the worst sins he could probably commit. And what Joseph learned was, and we read it in chapter 45, that God used the innocent Joseph and his wicked brothers to bring about the movement of Israel, Jacob and his sons and daughters, to a safe location. Jesus has told us the same type of thing should happen to us, that there will be times of persecution, there will be hard times. He said, look, there's going to be earthquakes and wars and rumors. This is normal life. We've had a blessing over, what, 70 years where we had lots of peace. But he says that this isn't normal. Joseph and his brothers, that's kind of normal. But you see, Joseph remembered that God's sovereignty worked in his life in which he was innocent and his brothers who, was, who did a very wicked thing. This is what Joseph said. Don't be distressed that you sold me because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. And he did. He said, don't be distressed. And oftentimes we can be distressed because hard times this happens. Terrible things can happen to us. Tragedies can happen. And if we look back into Joseph's life, you see, he remembered God every step of the way. So even when he was in prison, he said, only God can interpret dreams. He pointed to God every time, but he languished in prison, and he told the cupbearer, please remember me, and it didn't, so he languished in prison. Though he was very, he was innocent. 
But little did he know back then that he would be the one that would save Egypt from certain starvation and death, that he would be the one to help and preserve his own family's life. Little did he know that because of what he was doing, that the nation of Israel would grow in the land of Goshen. And I'm sure you've been told that Egyptians don't like people who pasture animals, so they were going to be preserved all by themselves in the land of Goshen. He, they didn't, he wouldn't know that Moses was going to come along 400-some years later. Didn't, he wouldn't know that the law was going to happen. He wouldn't know that David was going to come in the line of Judah. He wouldn't know that there was going to be an exile and a return. They wouldn't know. He wouldn't know that there was going to be 400 years of silence and then John the Baptist would appear. The Son of God would appear. And the Savior would be here. Emmanuel, God with us. What he knew was that God, despite what his brothers did, sent him to Egypt to do a job. And at the end of of, of Genesis, they are established in, in Egypt, and then we know that Joseph dies. But he remembered God. Let's take a look at what happened to Joseph and the steps in which he remembered. So let's look at chapter 41, verse 50. It says here in Genesis 41, verse 50, it says, Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphar's priest of On. Now, this is a different Potiphar, of course, just like Abimelech. There were a couple of Abimelechs. There were a number of Potiphar's. But notice, he was given the priest's daughter. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. In 52, it says, The second son he named uh, Ephraim and said, It's because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. So he has two sons. And the first one, well, firstly, we have to realize that he now has in his household this priestess daughter. But what was his response? His response when he has children is, God. It's not the priests of Egypt, but it's God. And what did God do? It says, God made me forget all my troubles and my father's household. And then when Ephraim is born, he said that God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. So at this point, you can imagine Joseph is now 30 years of age. He has two children. He has a wife. And he's got a normal life. And he's really kind of excited about what's going on. Because his, his life is, I guess you could say, at some normal. But he is remembering God in the birth of his children. And from these passages, you can say that he has given up all hope in seeing his father and going back to Canaan or anything of the sort. 
when I was a teenager, my father got me a job where he worked uh, Milner Rigsby in West Lorne, and I could probably count on one hand how many English-speaking Canadians that were there. Almost, almost all of them were, were immigrants, and my father said one day he was talking with others, and uh, the boss was there, Mr. Leitman, he was German, and he used the term, and my parents always used two terms, uh, the old country and back home. And so he said this, and the boss interrupted him and said, no, this is our home now. And that really made an impact, because my father never wanted to go back home. This was his home now. And Joseph was looking at it and says, this is my home now. And so he's trying to forget everything that happened. Not remembering, he was trying to forget. And he had a normal life. Well, let's skip along to uh, Genesis 42, verse 1. Genesis, so it's the first verse of chapter 42. So we haven't seen Jacob for a number of chapters, and here we find Jacob. Verse, uh, verse 1, when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep on looking at each other? Kind of a weird saying, isn't it? So, he learned that there was grain in Egypt. Now, we can need a little bit of a geography lesson. Uh, because how did Jacob learn there was grain in Egypt? If you look at the, uh, a map, Israel is the land bridge between Africa and Asia. If there was any travel between Africa and Asia, it's right through Israel. Jacob was in the middle of it. We talk about the land of uh, plenty of milk and honey. When uh, Joshua was, uh, when uh, the Israelites were supposed to go into the land, they had really big grapes, all that stuff. But there was another aspect of the good news of Israel, and that is this was kind of like. Um, a free trade zone. It was like the stock market. People were traveling through in caravans. You would have trade. You would know what's going on both in Asia and also in Egypt. There was danger, of course. Foreign gods, other people uh, invading back and forth. But again, that was a promise that this land was going to be given to Jacob and his descendants. And it was because it was land of flow, uh, milk and honey. And of course, people would be traveling. So this is how they learned, how Jacob learned that there was food in Egypt. Now, if we go back a few chapters, we're learning that Jacob's sons are, are marrying, and we saw some of them marrying Canaanites. Not a good thing, according to Isaac and, and such. They were spreading out, of course, when there's lots of uh, property, lots of animals, you start to spread out. However, this is a famine. And so what's happening now is his sons who were spreading out as there was less and less pasture, less and less property for animals to um, graze. When you lacked grain, what was it that you probably ate? Probably your livestock. And so what we find is the famine is so strong that Jacob says, why do you keep on looking at each other? Why? There wasn't anything to do. The grain wasn't growing. You probably ate most of your animals. There was nothing to do. And so he told them, go to Egypt. Because you're not doing anything anyway. But he says, you're not taking Benjamin. 
Now, one of the things that uh, Jacob had was he had two wives. And Leah and the arrangement with Jacob was a typical marriage. If you go back 400 years and you read some of the historical uh, stuff, uh, you will find that the average uh, marriage lasted about 12 years, and then the wife died in childbirth. And again, because of the Christian marriage, one, one would marry, and if your wife died, then you would probably marry again. And there's records that show that some of the men married even two days after their wife died. And the reason being is that marriage back then, again, we talk about wives staying at home and doing housework. Well, back then there wasn't much of a house to look after. The wife looked after the, the gardens and the property around and while the men went out uh, further, further afield. And so Leah was a, tip, was a typical type of marriage. It didn't have much to do with love. However... Every now and then, and we can read in the historical documents like Jonathan Edwards, who they fell in love with their wife, and Jacob fell in love with Rachel. And there was a deep love, so much that it was, he saw the Joseph, and then when Benjamin was born, she died, and all of that love was placed upon Benjamin and Joseph. But, as it's stated again and again, Benjamin was, oh, sorry, Joseph was no more. So all of his love was based upon um, Benjamin. He was not going to let Benjamin go. Well, they are off they go to Egypt and look at chapter 42, verse 6. Um, it says here, Now Joseph was the governor of the land and the one who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where did you come from? He asked, from the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Skipping to verse 9, then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, you're spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. Now, when we look at that, we realize that Joseph remembered them. They didn't. And the the, the obvious reason is, um, well, the main reason is these brothers came to buy food from this powerful person, and so they were on the ground uh, trembling in fear. There were guards, there were interpreters. And, of course, the other reason was that Joseph is not a 17-year-old. He's now 30 He's dressed like an Egyptian. He spoke uh, Egyptian, whatever that language might have been. And so, in fear, they didn't recognize him. But, of course, Joseph, again, his brothers were older. They probably didn't change a whole lot. And so he recognized them. And they didn't recognize him at all. And so, now begins what some might say is a game. But I don't think it's a game. And we all know the story, if you've been in church for more than a few years, how Joseph sends them away and puts the money back in their sacks. 
And I don't think that that's a game. I think the Lord had given Joseph wisdom, and this was a way in which God's plan was going to be ironed out. And the beginning of looking back from the cross, we can see some of God's patterns of justice can, uh, is going to be taken place. Joseph was the innocent one. Anyway, Joseph was the ruler. And he, it says he treated them harshly. But when we think of the exodus, Israel leaving Egypt, going towards the promised land, we often don't think about Egypt. What happened to Egypt? And I want us to think about what happened to Egypt because this uh, impacts what Joseph was doing. This would have been a natural thing that his brothers should have expected to take place. So he said, you're spies and you are looking out to see the nakedness of the land, the weakness of Egypt. So let's start... Moses on the opposite side of the Red Sea. They are now marching away from Egypt. What just happened? Pharaoh's army was destroyed. So the army's gone. They're lacking a defense. And just before that happened, what happened? Israel was, they were leaving going toward the Red Sea, but what did they do? They asked the Egyptians for their gold, and they gave it to them. So they took with them the riches of Egypt. So they lost their army, they lost their riches, and then it comes down to the last plague. What did they lose? The firstborn. Now, archaeology is not, in a, not some person in a, an office saying what said or didn't happen. Uh, we have a nice archaeological find about this time period. Uh, a city in which there's mass graves. Now, every normal uh, civilization, when somebody dies, they give them a burial. We might not agree with how they bury them, but there's a ritual. But this was different. There were mass graves. But, uh, bodies thrown haphazardly in a large pit, and they were covered up all throughout the city. And the other settlement down the road was just abandoned. Sound familiar? Now, the Egyptians lost their army and their firstborn. So if they wanted to mount another army, they're not going to have a good time. But what also happened? What did the hail do? It killed all the animals, right? Except for Israel's. So they didn't have, so they lost their army, they lost their gold, they lost their firstborn, they lost their animals. Now, the other plagues, what did the other plagues do? It knocked out what? The crops. And the archaeological evidence for the city indicates that they were then invaded by another country and enslaved the Egyptians because they were naked. They were weak. 
And so now we can see why Joseph was talking to his brothers in a harsh way because he was in charge of giving out grain but also protecting Egypt. Now, some people say there's not much humor in the Bible, and they're correct, but I can't help but uh, believe that uh, Joseph probably laughed uh, in the response that his brothers gave him. Now, we have to remember, his brothers sold him as a slave. He told them they were spies. And look at verse 11 of 42. What do they say? We are sons of one man. Your servants are honest men and not spies. I wonder if Joseph had to hold back his chuckle when he heard that. Well, again, they feared. And one of the interesting things, of course, is that they believe Joseph can't understand Hebrew. And so they can talk to themselves without this important person hearing what they're saying. Look at verse 21. And this is what his brothers are saying. Surely we are being punished because of our brothers, our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an account of his for his blood. Well, Joseph's brothers had a problem with that teenage Joseph. And he only, they only had a problem with the teenage Joseph when he was around. When he went back to dad, there was no problem. When he showed up, they got angry. They wanted to kill him. Reuben said not to. And kind of Reuben kind of would say, what, what would you say that Reuben actually said? I told you so, Right? But now that they committed this terrible sin, Joseph is always with them, isn't isn't it? They committed this gross sin. Before it was just Joseph showed up and they were angry. Now, in their minds, they, they sold Joseph as a slave, believing that he died as a slave. They were guilty. Not only that, but they sinned against his, their father Jacob. And in their conscience, they were always remembering the sin that they committed. And they said, uh, surely we are being punished for our brother. We have just, we, uh, so, but we, so basically they were, be, they believed that they were being punished. And of course, their conscience was punishing them because they committed this gross sin. And so sometimes, Now, we have to remember, what did Joseph say in the end? Don't be distressed. Don't be hard on yourself. I was put here by God. Was it wrong that they committed that sin? Yes. Did they sin? Yes. Was it, Joseph was there. He did nothing wrong. But God's sovereignty used everything so that Joseph would be there to preserve life. Sin. Sin that you're going to commit 
tomorrow, which hopefully you don't. When were you forgiven that sin that you might commit tomorrow? Back 2,000 years ago on the cross. We struggle in this life because I lost my business. My dog died. The house died. I've got, I've got cancer or uh, I've, I'm, I've got a divorce. I, I, I'm being punished. I'm feeling guilty for this sin I've done. Is, this is the reason why. Sometimes our sin causes direct harm. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes, we're, sometimes we have problems in our lives and it has nothing to do with what uh, has happened to us. Jesus talked to his disciples about that, right? Anybody remember that chapter? Pastor Tyler spoke on it, so that tells you John. In John chapter 9, the blind man, his disciples said what? Did he sin or his parents sin that he's blind? And Jesus said, neither. And so the glory of God would be shown. Joseph was innocent. His brothers did a wicked thing. But it was all used to the glory of God to bring Israel into uh, a safe place to Goshen. So anyway, uh, here we have Joseph repeats the plot numbers of, uh, a couple of times. Uh, in verse 15, it says, the, uh, sorry, this, uh, this is verse 15 of um, chapter 42. And this is how you will be tested. And it's changed a couple of times. So finally it was that Simeon would be left behind. They're going to go back and bring Benjamin. And they won't be able to get any grain um, until Benjamin comes back with them. And of course, this all has to do with Jacob, whether he was going to release Benjamin or not. However, again, we saw this. Uh, Joseph gave them the grain, and all of the money was put in the sacks. And away they went, and Joseph let it, ro- let it ride. And so when they had to stop to give their animals some food, they saw the money. And what did this say here? Verse 42, chapter 42, verse 25. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other trembling and said, What is that? What is this that God has done to us? Yes, what what is this that God has done to us? God is sovereign, and he lays down a sovereign plan for our lives. Whether you're Joseph or his brothers, his sovereign plan moves forward. And he uses those events in our life in accordance with his sovereign plan. However, it says here, what is this that God has done to us? I don't know about you, but how many times have you wondered when you were younger... Why did that happen? And then 
next year, next 10 years or 20 years, you're saying, oh, that's why that happened. He turned you away from the direction you were going, whether it was because you were innocent like Joseph or you committed a sin like his brothers, that turned you away. And you see, that's why. The danger here is what is this that God has done to us and we feel that God is punishing us. I always go back to the, one, the clear events. Uh, I don't know about you, but there's many times that I should have died. And I didn't. Um, as a crazy young guy, I was cycling in Toronto. What a silly thing to do. And uh, this one time, I thought this was the end. The, uh, I was on the sidewalk, and I was going onto the main road. There was, f- there was a four-lane road with stoplights and my bicycle tire was a perfect fit in between the sidewalk and the curb and so when my bicycle tire hit it it stayed and I rolled right into the four lanes of traffic which again it was red and there was nobody there there were lots of events just like that why has why did God do that and that's, that's a simple thing. But again, and when you think of all the things that happened in your life, and sometimes they're good and sometimes they're not, and you wonder why. He turns us away. He's got a sovereign plan, not just for you, not just for me, but for, as we read here, it's not just simply for Joseph, not for his brothers, but we see for the nation of Israel. But let's take a look at how they're feeling. This is time of a famine, so it's not a very good time. When we don't have enough rain here, we're, we're worried. We would like more rain for the crops. But if there's a great famine like it's, it's happening there, this is, again, verse chapter 42, verse 28. His brothers, Joseph's brother says, what is this that God has done to us? And then if you skip down to 36, this is Jacob. Everything's against me. So it's not a very happy household. They're back in Canaan. And his brothers are saying, what has God God done to us? Everything is against me. So Joseph's brothers are feeling guilty. And Jacob is just kind of throwing up his hands, not knowing what to do. However, we have to think, what did Jacob want? He wanted grain from Egypt. And they never saw this before, the, the extent of a famine. They probably got enough grain for what? For the next, up until the next planting season, and then all the way up to the harvest, right? That would be good, that would be good planting. But unfortunately, the famine was going to continue on for five years. And so as we turn to the next part, which is uh, verse 9 of the next chapter, um, they realize that they are not... They don't have enough grain. They're going to have to go back to Egypt. And the danger is Simon's in prison. And Jacob does not want to send Benjamin, so they don't know what to do. Reuben, the firstborn, again, Reuben, uh, did not have a good 
relationship with his father because of an immorality type event. Um, and Reuben says, you know, we could, we could have gone down there twice. But Judah steps forward. Now we have to remember who's in the line of Judah. But David and Christ. And listen to what Judah says in verse 9. I myself will guarantee his safety. I don't like using words that I, I don't normally use, but I think you're old enough to have used this word uh, in this verse, and that's surety, right? You've used that one in the past. So, so Judah it has convinced Jacob that his life was going to guarantee Benjamin's life. It was a guarantee. Sound familiar? Again, we're building. Jesus said that these things had to happen to fulfill the scriptures. Anyway, verse 9, it says, I myself will guarantee his safety. And then chapter 43, verse 14, it says, "May God." Jacob says here, May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your other brother, Simeon, and Benjamin and come back with you. As for me, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. So Jacob, sorry, Judah is offering surety, and we find he's going to go one step further. But here we look at Joseph, uh, Jacob, and he's kind of throwing up his hands. He says, I don't know what to do. If, I'm, if he dies, he dies. If I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. I don't know what to do here. Uh, so he's either going to send them down for food or he's going to die of starvation. Well, again, nine go down plus Benjamin. And something different happens. Look at verse uh, 43, verse 16. There we read that instead of going to the court, the open session, his brothers are sent to Joseph's private home. Now, that could be a concern. It's his private home. So there's two possibilities there. Joseph is going to enslave them or kill them or do something bad to them so nobody can see. Or what's the other option? He's going to give them a a banquet, a food. He's going to give them a good time. And they don't know. The interesting thing, however, is uh, the one who takes them into Joseph's home home is, is the steward. And if you notice, in verse 23... His steward has, Joseph has told the steward about God. Now, his brothers speak to the steward because the steward isn't as powerful or scary as Joseph. And he says, what about this money? And this is what the steward says. It's all right, he said. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. So the steward learns about God. From Joseph. And his brothers are still afraid of Joseph. But don't be afraid. And of course, when they get to Joseph's uh, home, uh, and then again, Genesis 43, uh, 32, something miraculous happens. And that is, there's this great feast. 
And it says uh, in verse 33, the men had been seated before him in order of their ages. Well, I learned a couple of things in my very long life, and that is, don't ask how long she's, when she's expecting. Not a good thing for a man to ask. Um, and the other thing is, don't guess somebody's age. Um, I live with somebody who's guessed wrong many times, uh, how old somebody is. But for some strange reason, they looked, and they're all according to the ages. For them, it would be miraculous, right? But for Joseph, he knew their ages, and that was astonishing to them. So they had this great banquet, and notice that the race card comes in. The Egyptians don't eat with uh, Hebrews. Again, they don't eat with people who are pasturing animals. It's typical that you see around the world that people separate themselves. Some people are, are unclean. That's what we have. Uh, we don't accept that now, but that was normal, everyday stuff that goes on. Uh, and then what happens is Joseph sends them off again. So in 42, uh, 44 verse 2, uh, he sends them off, but he tells the steward to put his silver cup in whose sack? Benjamin's. The other thing that Joseph does is he knows, well, if you were Joseph's brothers and you had all that money returned to you in the past, you would try to open up your sacks as quick as you can to see if the money was back in place, to see if it was done again. So Joseph said, told the steward, before they leave too far, catch up with them and search the sacks to find the cup. Of course, it's in Benjamin's sack. They didn't have enough time to go through it. And what did they do? As soon as the silver cup is found in Benjamin's sack, in verse 13, it says, At this, they tore their clothes. Then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. So now they know that they're in trouble. And I'm sure they would have said, what has God done to us now? But we don't hear what the brothers say. But we do see what Judah decides to do. And again, we're thinking of the scriptures had to be fulfilled. Look at uh, Judah is speaking in verse 16. And it says, uh, 44, what can we say to my Lord? Judah replied, what can we say? How can we prove our innocent? God has uncovered our servant's guilt. Now, he was not guilty for taking the silver cup, but Judah is guilty for selling Joseph as a slave. So probably didn't matter what guilt. He was just still feeling guilty and wondering what God was going to do. Verse 18, it says, Then Judah went up to him and said, Please, my Lord, let your servant speak a word to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. Now then, verse 33, Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers. So Judah said to his father, I will guarantee the boy's safety. 
And now he's turning to, to Joseph, and he says to, the, says to Joseph that I am going to be Benjamin's substitute. Well, Joseph has had just about enough. And if you read from chapters 41 all the way to 45, many times Joseph had to leave because of his emotional roller coaster ride. And so in chapter 45, we just read it, Joseph says in verse 45, 3, he said to his brothers, I am Joseph. And then skipping to verse 5, and now do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Then he threw, and then verse 45, chapter 45, verse 14. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed his brothers. God's sovereignty worked through all of the innocence and the guilt to bring Israel into the land of Goshen, where they would be isolated from the pagan practices of Canaan. They would be isolated from the Egyptians because the Egyptians looked upon them as unclean, as shepherds. And there, for more than 400 years, they would grow. And after about 400 and some years, It says that they had 600,000 fighting men. If you do all the math, probably a few million Israelites are are now in the land of Goshen. But again, Joseph wouldn't have seen that. But that's the groundwork. That's God's sovereignty. So we see here, number one, Joseph is innocent. His brothers are committed a grave sin. But Judah guarantees Benjamin's safety. He also offers his life as a substitute for Benjamin's life. And at the end, the family gathering is they fall, he falls upon Benjamin's neck. Jesus said, this has to happen to fulfill Scripture. Turn with me to Hebrews 7.22. Hebrews 7.22. Hebrews 7.22 says, Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Hebrews 7.22. He has become surety for us. He's become a guarantee for us of this new covenant He is our Savior. He's guaranteeing our salvation. Turn with me to Mark 10.45. Mark 10.45. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Christ guarantees our salvation. 
and he is the substitute, a ransom that paid for our sin on the cross. So when Christ died on the cross, he took your sin. He is our substitute, which means that his righteousness is ours. How do you know that's true? He's guaranteed that that's true. We don't have to hope, guess, pray, why? This is the truth. When we sin, we should be guilty, but we need to know that our sins are forgiven and that we are guaranteed eternal life in his name. What's going to be the end result when this life is all over? What is it going to be like? We have this example of Joseph and Benjamin, but we also have a nice parable that describes that as well. What parable is that? Let's turn to Luke 5.20. What parable? The end of the parable of the prodigal son. And what happens there? The wayward son doesn't have a chance to say anything. He is silent as the father reaches out and embraces the long lost son, Luke 15, 20. So Christ is our guarantee. He is our substitute. He has paid the price for our sin. We enjoy his righteousness And when we are in the presence of our Heavenly Father, he is going to welcome us home because of what Christ has done. What a beautiful picture of what our Savior has done for us. What a beautiful picture of our homecoming in glory. Don't be dismayed. God's sovereignty will work it out to bring us home into his presence to glory. To glory for his glory and his honor, not ours. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the message from Joseph and his brothers. We thank you for the work that your son has done for us on the cross. We thank you that he has, again, during this Christmas season, that your son came to be with us uh, as our Savior, to be with us, God with us. May we sense uh, just the blessings that we have in knowing him, and may we be bold enough this Christmas season to share that with our family and friends that they may know, that they may understand, they may see the peace we have in you, our Lord and Savior. Amen. God bless and you are dismissed.